Hello, my name's Jonathan Self and I'm the founder of Honey's Real Dog Food. Honey's was delighted to provide the funding for this podcast. If you're looking for more information on raw feeding and canine nutrition, you can download a free copy of the best-selling guide, The Natural Feeding Handbook, from www.honeysrealdogfood.com. Hello and welcome back to the Dog Nutrition Podcast. I'm Penny Borum. And I'm Seb Masters. If you heard our last episode, you'll know we touched on a question at the heart of the dog food debate. Are dogs omnivores or carnivores? This appears to be quite a simple question, and you'd think there would be quite a straightforward answer. But in fact, there's little consensus on this. And importantly, how we answer the question, are they omnivores or carnivores? ties in directly with what we put in their dog bowls. Dog nutritionist and author Dr Connor Brady thinks that making the question this binary, either or, omnivore, carnivore, is part of the problem. After all, he says, even within the category omnivore, there's a huge variety of animals and with that comes a huge variety of dietary needs. People throw the word omnivore around as if there's one type of omnivore, you know, so Oh, imagine if you were a zookeeper and somebody presented you with this with a big blue furry animal with seven legs and 14 eyes. And they said, there you go. You're in charge of this blue animal and uh, you must feed it and keep him healthy. OK, and your first question will be, OK, what does he eat? And then the person tells you he's an omnivore. Bye. And off they go. If you had a bit more time with that person, you might have said, well, an omnivore like like a, like a red fox who spends about 75% of his time eating animal protein, 25% veg, or an omnivore like a black bear that spends about 75% of his time eating plant material, 25%. And then what type of plant material and when? What plants are, are native to his uh, to his niche and, and, and does, does it change with the, with the seasons and how much should I feed and when? All these questions are out the window with the dog. So Connor's saying that even if you say a dog's an omnivore, you have to be more specific in terms of its needs. There is not one single type of omnivore. Each species needs a different ratio of plant to meat material in its diet. This diet can further be broken down into a proportion of free macronutrients. So that's protein and fat, primarily found in meat, and carbohydrates, which is consumed through plants. When we or contributors to this podcast mention starch, sugars, fibre, glucose, grain or wheat, they'll be referring to carbohydrates. The ratio of plant to meat in an animal's diet determines where they are placed on something called the herbivore-carnivore continuum. Imagine a continuing line. On the left side we have the exclusively plant-eating herbivores like cows and sheep. Then to the right of that we have the grainivores like rodents and some small birds. They have little meat in their diet. Then towards the centre, moving to the right into carnivory, we have people and pigs. And to the far right we have obligate carnivores, like cats. So if we want to give our pet pooches the best diet possible, we always need to know where they sit on this spectrum. Ian Billingshurst, who is a veteran Australian veterinary practitioner and one of the initial pioneers of the raw food movement, believes that in order to answer this question, we need to understand where dogs have come from. We need to know 
their evolutionary history. We can, he explains, then match their diet to their genes. He describes this as the fundamental principle guiding him to the most beneficial nutrition for dogs, which he believes to be raw food. Nothing in biology makes any sense except in the light of evolution. And so what we're talking about here with raw is not something that's weird and new and unscientific. It's very much related to evolutionary biology because it's what, we, what we're feeding when we're feeding raw is trying to mimic the evolutionary diet of an animal. In other words, the, the diet that fits best with their genome, the one they were designed by evolution uh, to use. And, and how they were designed was simply because that's what they ate over, over millions of years. As we probably know, Darwin's um, theories on evolution now form the basis of every aspect of science or biological science that we look at. On that basis alone, we can see that evolutionary nutrition has to be the gold standard. If only you can find out what the evolutionary diet of an animal is, then you are going to have gold standard nutrition. So Ian Billingshurst is saying that in order to achieve this optimum nutrition, it's important to understand that evolutionary timeline. However, Ian Billingshurst does make it clear that the dog's genome is not the same as the wolf's was then, and in any case, the wolf then is not the same as the wolves around now, which have, of course, themselves evolved. I've looked at the evolution of the dog from way back. So there's the pre-being with humans period, which ended somewhere between 200,000 years and maybe 50,000 years ago. Um, then there was a period where the, the wolves becoming dogs, and, and, and this is accepting that wolves, the dogs evolved from wolves, actually followed mankind in his, in his or her hunting exploits. And so there was a period of this camp, what I've called the camp following era. We now know from mitochondrial evidence that in that time, the um, wolf becoming dog, and he was still a wolf, was just a separate group of wolves who followed mankind around and was now beginning to depend on mankind for uh, the leftovers from mankind's hunting exploits. And also the reverse, the wolf hunting exploits would have been raided by mankind. And so we had this co-living relationship that was, and that probably went on for maybe 200,000 years or as short as 50,000 years. But around about 10 to 15,000 years ago, mankind ran out of food to hunt and started forming villages and a settled lifestyle. This was when agriculture began. And so we had the beginning of farming, the, the, um, the domestication of livestock. We had the, <clears throat> the domestication of wheat and, and other crops. And man became more reliant on farming for his food, particularly grain-based farming and storage of grain and so on. So outside each village, of course, humans generate lots of waste. So there forms a rubbish dump. And the wolves that were previously camp-following wolves, and this has been documented by um, a fellow called Coppinger in his book Dogs, and the wolves becoming dogs would now start to live on the, on the heaps and would, would eat more and more foods that were generated by humans. So they're becoming more and more scavengers. And so we had this change over 15,000 years of the wolf becoming more of a scavenger, more, less of a hunter, a little bit more coprophagic, more feces eating, you also get bodily changes because they're linked genetically. And so it was becoming a little bit more omnivorous. 
In fact, Ian Billingshurst often describes dogs as carnivorous omnivores or omnivorous carnivores. In terms of that continuous herbivore-carnivore continuum we've been talking about, he might say that dogs sit to the right of the centre and to the left of cats, who are themselves more carnivorous as they are those obligate carnivores. Ian has outlined how a close coexistence with humans changed the lifestyle and behaviour and ultimately the physiology of these wolves becoming dogs. And this, he says, is essential to understanding what they should eat. There is also a fun example I like very much, showing how coexistence led to the emergence of what is often called puppy eyes. Researchers found that dogs have evolved muscles around their eyes, which allows them to make expressions that are appealing to humans. We've all seen this and probably caved into them. Those large, sad, longing eyes that stare up at us while we're trying to cook some chicken. Well, these eyes can be seen as a finely tuned evolutionary adaptation specifically designed to tug at our heartstrings. And it certainly works. In my experience as a human, I am more likely to chuck a bit of chicken to a dog that is displaying these puppy eyes. Yes, I've definitely found that works too. But you've opened my eyes to what that's all about. But doesn't that show how enmeshed dogs, humans and food really are? And there's another adaptation that is relevant to our omnivore-carnivore question. In fact, it's probably one of the main reasons the omnivore-carnivore debate exists at all. It concerns the prevalence of a gene in dogs called AMY2B. The vet Richard Doyle enlarges on this and how dog systems are designed to digest. They mostly have digestive systems, including digestive enzymes, which are designed to digest meat. Um, and animal products. So not only meat, but bones, skin, fur, and so on. In the last 20,000 years of domestication, where dogs have become more scavenging, they are still carnivorous scavengers, but they have scavenged more and they've been fed more human food than they than they would have in the wild. Um, and human food tends to be higher in carbohydrates. Um, so one of the enzymes, for instance, that digests, that helps digest starch, um, which is a carbohydrate, is amylase. So there's a gene called AMY2B, which um, is responsible for producing amylase, which digests starch. So there's a lot of research that's gone into the prevalence of this particular gene. And it is true that over the last 20,000 years of uh, our evolution with dogs, there, the prevalence of this gene has increased, which has increased dogs' ability to digest starch. But that simple fact doesn't make them starch eaters um, uh, or herbivores. Um, they are still intrinsically carnivores, in our opinion. And you just have to look at a dog to appreciate that. You just have to look at their dental structure. You just have to look at the shape of their heads, their jaws, how their jaws work. Um, the length of their intestine, their microbiomes. Um, this is all evidence that fundamentally they are still carnivores. And to suggest that feeding these guys carbohydrates is just insane. But vet Danny Chambers doesn't agree with this standpoint. And he advocates the prevalence of this gene, AMY2B, demonstrates dogs can tolerate a higher carb diet easily and resents what he sees as an attack on the dog food industry. 
think it's wrong that you know the proponents of raw feeding you know accuse the veterinary industry of actively trying to harm your animals but the other half of this is this misconception firstly that natural is healthier because it's a misunderstanding of what modern dogs are like what we find that in wolves they have a very little ability to digest a starch you know there's a, there's a um, enzyme called amylase in their saliva and they don't produce much of it at all so wolves tend to be much more carnivorous dogs which have been through the you know the um, agricultural revolution with us have a much greater ability to digest amylase which means they can digest plants um, um, than wolves do however dog nutritionist connor brady would disagree he believes the presence of this gene only represents tiny steps along the continuum and it is actually also breed specific so many breeds have have kind of replicated that gene out a lot more up to 30 times more uh, many breeds of dogs have compared to wolves and dingoes and cats uh, but some breeds haven't and that's just depends on how you were brought up if you were brought up with farmers yes you have taken some tiny steps towards carbohydrate digestion tiny tiny steps fascinating insight again a darwin would have loved to have seen that but um the fact that he has taken the steps is is it's just interesting it's not a, it's, his whole body hasn't changed yet this is these are the tiny steps that we would have seen in any population that's changed their diet in the last few thousand years Connor enlarges on this to say that these tiny steps have been wrongly used by some food companies to justify feeding dogs an ultra-high carbohydrate diet. They hang on to a couple of examples that the dog has taken, a couple of tiny little evolutionary steps that Darwin would have killed to have understood. We can look genetically at these tiny little steps towards plant digestion that the dog has started to include in his diet. And they hang on to that and then feed the dog a 96% plant matter diet and say... Well, he's an omnivore, so therefore we can feed him vegan food. That's just scientific nonsense. There's no, that's just ridiculous. You know, if he's taking tiny steps, include tiny amounts of it. Why would you suddenly feed? There was a great response to this. Doug Newvin said this to Gene Dodds. It's not my line. I wish it was. And he said, just because I can physiologically digest uh, ethanol and sucrose doesn't mean 50% of my diet should be rum and cookies. And I just thought that's perfect, you know, so just because he can digest carbohydrates better than a cat and dogs can twice as good as cats, it doesn't mean that that you should be feeding them 60% wheat, which is many times more wheat than humans should be eating. Once again, we can see that the herbivore carnivore continuum is coming into play here. These high carb diets assume that dogs sit towards the center on the herbivore carnivore continuum and that their optimum ratio of plant to meat material is similar to that of humans. Ian Billingshurst again. Now their contention is its amylase levels have been rising, so this proves that they should be eating grain. I think it does exactly the opposite because these animals are still not adapted to eating these high carbohydrate diets. In fact, they're less adapted than humans are. So if we give them a mechanism for absorbing more carbohydrates into their system, and we feed them lots of carbohydrates, this is going to cause dangerously high levels of blood sugar, dangerously high levels of insulin. And this is the reason, for example, that our dogs today are probably some of the sickest animals on earth. They're sicker than humans, requiring so much veterinary intervention. Ian touching there on the potential consequences of feeding a diet which is not adequately suited to the species. 
Richard Doyle has been a vet for over 30 years and has seen a stark correlation between diet and illness. There are striking parallels between what's happening in the human world and what's happening in the veterinary world in terms of what our patients, our veterinary patients, and what human patients are eating and the diseases they're getting. So unprecedented levels in the human world of um, conditions like obesity, metabolic syndrome, strokes, heart attacks, hypertension, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, immune-mediated joint disease, to name a few. Um, and these, have, these diseases um, have escalated dramatically in the last 100, 150 years where food processing has become more of a thing. Um, the carbohydrate content in our human diets has skyrocketed. Um, there are many, many scientific papers which document the, the, the change in our human diet and the advent of these various diseases. The mirror image is happening in the veterinary world as well. You know, obesity, inflammatory bowel disease, immune-mediated joint disease. Dogs don't get strokes or um, uh, cardiovascular disease or hypertension based on, on food. Um, but we do see the dog's equivalent of metabolic syndrome, which is a whole syndrome associated with inappropriate nutrition. Now, you might say, well, dogs aren't fussy eaters. And that's true. Many of us know dogs will eat almost anything from Lego bricks to old socks. This is hardly surprising. As we heard from Ian, scavenging is a big part of their evolutionary history. But I'll be abusing the fact that dogs will eat pretty much everything by saying, well, then anything will do. Are we overlooking what is actually best for them? We know that dogs will eat what they are conditioned to eat from young. But when push comes to shove, Connor Brady says they will always choose meat. In the right situation, he says, they know what they want. It's a process called zoo pharmacology. Animals know what they need and what they want. If you leave a, you know, three or four Jack Russells in a field with lambs, you'll understand what this animal eats. He's not eating the grass that the lambs are eating. He's trying to get the lambs. They're pretty poor at catching them because they've lost the ability to hunt in packs and they bark and they run around yipping and but. Anybody that has a pet animal uh, near a farm will understand that their, their animal is definitely rigged for this, this sort of behaviour. So it's in there. And when we follow these dogs, truly feral dogs, they eat very high meat-based diets. But there's lots of other populations we can study. And the dingo was a really good one. Now, there's a big hot debate going on on how close the dingo is to a domestic dog. But what we do know is that the two interbreed very willingly. So they're not too far apart. You're talking a few thousand years. How it all came about and did they cross in themselves? Were they brought by people on boats? Totally irrelevant. The fact is, this animal is interbreeding with a dingo to the point that there's very few true dingo populations left breeding out the rest of the true dingo which is the last carnivore the, the australians have and when they look at the diets of these animals okay of domestic dogs and cross domestic dog hybrids we see there's three percent vegetation in the stomachs of these animals these are free to roam truly feral animals that you wouldn't ever see humans would never see them and they eat three percent plant matter and most of that came from dogs that were living in the tropics in australia where they were eating birds and they'd eat the bird whole and so they eat the stomach contents as well. It's just too much hassle to try to take off the feathers. So dogs are very much whole prey animals. They'll eat small animals whole. Frogs, lizards, birds, mice, maybe rats. They'll eat them whole, no problem. 
but as they get bigger to the size of a bit of a rabbit, a dog may eat the intestines, but he won't eat a stomach full of grass. That's of no interest to him. And once you get beyond that to baby lambs and, and slightly larger animals that dogs don't really hunt anymore, they're small animal specialists. They're just totally opportunistic. They'll eat anything with a face that they can catch. So that's their niche. It's a great niche to be in. They're not just stuck on one animal they must kill at certain times. They'll eat anything. Uh, insects, all sorts of stuff if they need to. But they'd rather a bit of meat and carcass and that kind of thing. But uh, for the larger animals, they don't eat the stomach content. So this is a very carnivorous animal. Studies by Mars, in fact, Mars Pet Food did these studies. I wouldn't name brands too easy because I'd be worried. But Mars Pet Food studies show that when you offer a dog protein and fat and carbs, they will include maximum 7% carbohydrates in their diet. They pig out on fat and then you eat protein and carbohydrates last because fat is such a commodity in the animal kingdom. It's such it's high energy. Boom, I'm ready to go. Uh, I don't need to worry about food for the next couple of days. And as the fat keeps on being produced to them, they eat less and less fat because they realize I'm going to kill myself here and have a heart attack. And they include more and more protein. And when you use more natural foods, they eat even more protein. But they always choose meat first always in any study no matter how much kibble you pile up on one side the dog will go for the piece of sausage it's not even dosage related it's meat meat flavored tissue anything gravy tainted dogs have a massive affinity for meat every feed trial tells us that so to suggest that it's anything other than than the meat eater with a small bit of plant matter creeping in uh it's it's just it's, it's nonsense it's not supported by the literature at all it's just a, an opinion Dog nutritionist Connor Brady there, outlining why he thinks dogs sit well and truly in the carnivore camp of our feeding continuum. Listening to this does certainly beg the question, why are some of the most popular dog foods so plant heavy? It's true that some foods can be made up of as much as 70% of carbohydrates. So please do listen to the next episode of the Dog Nutrition Podcast, and we will start to explore some of the different views on what the ideal dog's dinner might be. For now, from me, Seb Masters. And from me, Penny Borum. It's goodbye. And as usual, we'll leave you with Darcy enjoying his dinner. If you're looking for more information on raw feeding and canine nutrition, you can download a free copy of the best-selling guide, The Natural Feeding Handbook, from www.honeysrealdogfood.com.